0: Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello and welcome to the Benefits Compliance podcast. I'm Chase Cannon. I'm joined by my Colleague Suzanne Spradley, we're both attorneys with NFP's legal and compliance team, and we're on the podcast to help break down some of the challenging issues that are in front of employers with respect to their group health plans and their compliance efforts. And today, Suzanne, we are going to talk about a specific provision in ERISA. Uh, ERISA is a common law that we encounter in the in the compliance space with health and welfare plans and medical plans. Uh, but there's a recent court case on this. And so the specific provision in ERISA is section 510. So Suzanne, let's start with a quick overview of that section of ERISA.
1: Yeah, I think this provision is kind of interesting and it reared its head during health reform with the onslaught of the employer mandate. but. Um, It basically states that it's unlawful to discharge a participant or otherwise discriminate against the plan participant or beneficiary for exercising a right under an employee benefit plan or to interfere with attainment of any right to which a participant may become entitled under the plan. Um, It also makes it unlawful to discriminate against any person because that person has given information, has testified or is about to testify in any inquiry or proceeding related to ERISA um with this came came up when we were looking at employers reducing uh, the number of hours that an employee worked so that they wouldn't be full-time any longer when when we had the employer mandate come out and Arissa five ten questions arose i really um but this this more recent one is is interesting to
0: see right so this brings up so many questions and again with the backdrop that ERISA's is- one of the purposes of ERISA is to protect plan participants and beneficiaries, right? And to give them certain rights that if something goes wrong, they can um, sue or bring, bring a lawsuit against the plan. And so who is permitted to sue or, or bring a lawsuit under this provision of ERISA?
1: Yeah, there's actually been some really interesting cases on that issue alone. For example, courts have found that ERISA 510 discrimination claims are limited to actions affecting employer or employee Relationships, So there have been lawsuits by job applicants, um, and the courts have generally said that they're not permitted to sue under 510. So an employer that refuses to hire or rehire, for example, an individual because they might create a greater, li- greater liability under their employer plan, did not violate this statute. So that's not to say there weren't other avenues for them to you know, seek seek uh, some kind of redress, but not under ERISA 510. So generally, the trial court has concluded. um, Well, well, I won't jump onto the case just yet, but but that's generally it's going to be limited to an employer employee relationship.
0: Yeah. So the the next question is, who can be sued under this provision? We would typically think of the employer, but others have been successfully sued, haven't they?
1: Yeah, of course, most often the employers are going to be the one, the brunt of the lawsuit um, when there's a suit under ERISA at all, but under 510, um, the claim, but but the literal language of the provision refers to any person. So there have been claims that have been asserted against union officials, against insurance companies for interfering um, and putting pressure on the employer, for example, to terminate an individual due to outsized claims, um, a purchaser and a seller and an asset transaction. So think of M&A, um, even, an, even against a deceased participant's estate that had attempted to enforce a prenup agreement against the surviving spouse to preclude her from receiving benefits under the deceased pension plan. So it's not just the employer, but, but generally that's who we're going to think about.
0: Yeah, that's a fairly broad array of individuals. It can uh, be part of this, but like you said, I think most of the time, and, and for purposes of our audience, probably the employer is the main uh, entity there. Anything we uh, uh, anything else we need to know before talking about this uh, court case and the litigation involved?
1: Well, ERISA 510 usually involves situations in which an employee is terminated because a person's benefits are usually cut off then at termination or the employee may be prevented from attaining additional benefits. But but this could include a reduction in force termination. It could be there's been a case on a plant closure or changes that occurred because of M&A activity. Um, constructive discharge claims have also been brought under ERISA 510 in that it was alleged that the employer created conditions that were so intolerable that a reasonable person would resign. Uh, so you can see how this is really has greater um, legs to it than just your straight up termination and termination is not necessary, it could be some other form of employment action, but it's important to know that just implementing a plan that's viewed as discriminatory is not enough for a claim under ERISA 510. Also, these claims just know that they're very difficult for the plaintiff because it must be proven that the employer had specific intent to interfere with the person's attainment of that ERISA right. And obviously, intent is always difficult to prove, but certainly in this context, it would be difficult to prove. Um, One court did find discrimination on its face as sufficient evidence when the parties to an asset transaction actually stated in the asset purchase agreement that the buyer would hire individuals who were actively at work, but then would only hire those who were on leave upon their ability to resume work. And so that was considered sufficient evidence by the court um, for a claim under ERISA 510. But without direct evidence, employees would generally have to rely on circumstantial evidence.
0: Yeah, like like you said, circumstantial evidence can be very difficult to prove, and and showing that intent when uh, that's very difficult to show in most cases. But um, so so it's obviously very challenging for a participant to succeed here. But is is it ever successful?
1: Well, you're right. I mean, it is challenging. There is a framework though for courts to analyze circumstantial evidence, and it's borrowed from a well-known. Title VII employment discrimination case, and it's this three-stage burden-shifting framework. It begins with the first question, was the employee entitled to ERISA protection? Second, was the employee qualified for the position? And third, was the employee terminated under circumstances giving rise to an inference of discrimination? So if the employee can show these three things, then the burden will shift to the employer to provide that really the reason for termination was a non-discriminatory purpose and wasn't to have them uh, interfere with the benefits that are provided to the employee. If they do prove that, then the burden shifts back to the employee to show that the employer's reasoning was merely a pretext for discrimination. So that's generally the framework, but as you can see, they're very difficult. These cases are very difficult for the employee to win. And and we could really spend a considerable amount of time going over those cases, but we want to we wanna focus on the ones where the employee has prevailed. So for example, the Fifth Circuit upheld a jury's determination that employer fired an employee just after the employee returned to work after a heart attack and open heart surgery to avoid substantial medical claims under its plan. Um, In another case, a court rejected as pretextual an employer's explanation that a terminated employee's position had always been temporary, and it was simply eliminated, concluding that the termination was retaliation for the employee's large medical expense claims and anticipated future use of the employer's self-insured health plan. Um, among other things, the employee demonstrated that it would not be difficult for the employer to identify de-identified health plan information. And the employer was aware of the employee's likely need for additional medical costs. So you can see there's there are fact patterns where the employee has been successful.
0: Yes. Okay. so that helps us get some of the background here on how this might work. And that brings us to the case we want to go a little bit deeper on. That case name is uh, that we're talking about today. Karis versus uh, South Pines Trucking. So tell us about the facts for this case yeah
1: it's actually southern pines but the plaintiff alleged that southern Pines had violated erisa 510 along with the ada ada and and you will often see by the way erisa Five Ten claims along with other statutory claims as well um but southern plains fired him after his hip replacement surgery so interestingly the jury found for the employer on the ADA and ADEA and an advisory verdict in favor of the employer on the ERISA claim but the district court granted judgment to the plaintiff on his ERISA claim finding that he had actually proven that Southern Pine retaliated against him for using his ERISA protected benefits um it's worth stating here that the awards under ERISA 510 are to provide equitable relief, not monetary damages. And so that's what we see in ERISA cases. And that's why generally employers want to be able to um, have a case removed into federal court under ERISA rather than state court claims because there is limited um, availability for damages. So equitable relief would include things like lost ERISA benefits. Um, back pay is generally not available under ERISA five ten because it's because it's considered legal relief, and I I say generally as there are a few cases out there that permit back pay, um, for example in the seventh circuit, but reinstatement is generally viewed as equitable relief pretty broadly. So if reinstatement not possible because, for example, in some cases they had a plant closure, then the court has to look to see if there's any other equitable relief under ERISA, and at times their courts have found that there was no no other relief. Um, that's not to say there's not relief under ADA, ADEA. There may be other other ways to uh, receive that back pay and other compensatory damages, but the ERISA 510 is a little bit more challenging. Um, if we go back to the lawsuit, the court had awarded this plaintiff 67,500 in front pay. Um, and we'll discuss that in a minute, and the attorney's fees. So the attorney's fees was roughly $112,000. And the em- employer appealed it up to the Third Circuit. And so I would, honestly, I would love to get more of the backstory on that to understand why the employer would look at less than 200000 as a reason to incur additional litigation damages or additional, additional litigation costs, because you know that's not cheap to Take a case up to the third circuit um there could have been other you know reasons that they wanted to avoid future litigation in the future on the same topic i don't know but it was i would love to know the backstory there at the circuit court level the court reviewed whether the evidence was sufficient to support the district court's verdict for the plaintiff there was direct evidence that was presented that the vp of operations told the plaintiff uh, to lay low after his surgery because the CEO was upset about his surgery. Now the VP of operations and the CEO were brothers. So maybe there was more dis- you know, uh, communication that would typically go on, but um, that was certainly not the best. That would not be our recommendation for communication with your employee that's just come off surgery. The district court also found that there were inconsistencies in the company's explanation that the plaintiff was fired for a legitimate business reason. They stated that, uh, the company had said that his position was no longer warranted but then a few months later another employee came over from from a sister company to perform some of his duties so clearly you know there were still duties to be performed uh, there were other examples of, of inconsistencies the participant had received a performance five figure bonus less than a week before he was fired so clearly he was he was performing well um, and there was also evidence that the firing was due to the use of the health benefits because the company's healthcare invoice had the plaintiff's hip, hip replacement surgery costs that were highlighted. And it was certainly easy to identify which employee it pertained to, even though uh, the invoice was anonymized, so that's something to really consider. If you have just few employees and you know which ones are going out on leave, or even going out for surgery or taking medical leave for a short period of time, it's easy enough to identify which the which employee has a certain medical cost. You need to be aware that that's just because the invoice itself is anonymized. It doesn't mean that you can't figure that out and it could be used against you. So um, the plaintiff also testified that he had told the CEO that he would need a second hip replacement surgery. And then he was fired after that. So you can see there's a lot of a lot Mm -hmm. of facts on his side that really pointed to the idea that that was in fact done so that they could avoid uh, that payment in the future.
0: Yeah, and this is especially challenging, Suzanne, just to jump in really quickly with these yeah. smaller companies, right? Oftentimes, I mean, this sounds like there was some family relations going on within the employment context as well, but just generally for smaller employers, when you have a termination like this, and, uh, and and there could be implications with benefits payments or upcoming surgeries or health status, to say it more broadly, it just gets a lot harder for smaller companies because people do know what's going on inside the company. They do know who's missing and and perhaps why. So those these are bigger, um, not, not that they're smaller for bigger firm, companies and firms, but just the idea that it could be heightened here for a smaller company.
1: No, you're right. Exactly. And I think that's one of the takeaways, certainly from this. Um, And the court looked at the fact that the employee was terminated shortly before a new benefit plan year started. And so they said, taking that together with all of the other things that I mentioned, that it was the evidence showed retaliation for use of benefits and the specific intent to prevent future use of benefits. So as I mentioned earlier, the court awarded the employees equitable relief in the form of $67,000 roughly in front pay. Um, So plus attorney's fees. But so you might ask yourself, I it- a minute ago, I said, you know, that they can't receive back pay, which was a legal expense, legal cost, but they, in this case, they received front pay. Um, so why is that? The back pay is considered compensatory for the claims that he actually lost on at trial, that the employer was um, found in favor of on the ADA and the ADEA. But front pay was determined similar to reinstatement. And since he couldn't be reinstated in this kind of hostile relationships, um, reinstatement is generally can as the preferred remedy uh, when you're seeking equitable relief. But in that case, front pay was considered the alternative. And it was really roughly the difference between the compensation he would have received in his former position and that what he did receive as a new employer when he was hired. So um, key takeaways from that is is really that we might see more cases uh, using front pay uh, for equitable relief under an ERISA 510
0: claim. All right, so uh, lots to unpack here, lots to consider for employers. Suzanne, what would you consider to be the top takeaways for our uh, employer audience today?
1: Well, I think anytime you're doing terminations, especially with one that you know, that's been out for any kind of medical purpose, you really wanna work with your outside counsel. I think I, you know, we often defer to that, but if you can certainly, um, you you can prevent some, prevent some headache uh, going forward when you do just engage those outside counsels with, with any type of termination that could be questionable.
0: Yeah, and that is an area where as much as we like to assist our clients uh, with benefits related issues, when it starts involving terminations of employment, that's just places, uh, situations that can get really sticky really fast. We didn't talk much about the ADA accommodations. We're focusing mostly on the ERISA aspects here, which is super important, but you know, having a reasonable accommodation in place for somebody like this and, and not just jumping to a termination could have been an area where maybe they found middle ground and were able to work through the situation. But anytime you are talking about termination of employment, particularly when there are benefits uh, benefits might be impacting that decision, that's a time to talk to outside counsel. Slow your roll and make sure you're getting it right before you walk into one of these lawsuits.
1: That's a good takeaway, slow your roll. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Great, well, thanks so much for this uh, breakdown here, Suzanne. Great information. And uh, as we like to say on the podcast. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining, Thank you for joining. us.